Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Jamil Smith, and this is Intersection. Yes, welcome to 2016, everyone. The new year is naturally a time of self-assessment, of renewal. You take account of where you stand and see where you can improve. For many of us, this accounting begins in the mirror. A lot of folks, myself included, look at their bodies and decide there's room for some serious improvement. Inherently, body image is about identity. And as opposed to something like race or sexual orientation, it can drastically change over time. In the season of New Year's resolutions, I felt it right to talk about body image, how we view ourselves and how others view us based upon whether we're fat, ripped or somewhere in between. I talked to four great people separately about all this. Lindy West, Andrea Winslow, Isaac Fitzgerald and Erica Nicole Kendall. We'll start with Lindy West a Seattle-based writer for GQ and columnist for The Guardian. If you listen to This American Life, you may remember her breathtaking episode from a year ago in which she confronted an internet troll who impersonated her late father. Lindy gets trolled a lot, just for being a woman writing on the internet, but also because she's a proud fat woman writing on the internet. Recently, she wrote about being a proud fat bride, and that's where our conversation started. Hey, Lindy, are you there? I'm here. Hey, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm so good. Thanks for making time to talk to me about this. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very flattered. You got married this past summer. Can you tell me about the experience of preparing for your wedding in a culture that isn't so keen on celebrating brides that don't fit into size two Vera Wang dresses? You know, as soon as you get engaged, you start being bombarded with email and targeted ads and a ton of them are for weight loss. It's just expected that brides are going to try and be as thin as possible for their wedding because there's this idea that uh, it has to be sort of the ultimate you in your pictures, which I think is kind of a damaging thought that the ultimate me isn't just the person that I am every day and the person that my husband proposed to. So I just didn't want to spend the year before my wedding trying to starve myself and and hating myself for not doing a good enough job. And I I wanted to spend it having a a great time with my fiancé. And, you know, we we traveled. We went to Malaysia, and we had fun, and we did exciting new cool things, and we ate great food, and it was a it was a really fun year. And I wanted to spend it having fun and not being miserable. Um, and it's not like I ate extra food. <laughs> you know, I just, right. I just lived my normal life. You know, it took me a long time to get to the point where I am now where I can feel comfortable in my body and um, exercise because it makes me feel good and makes me feel healthy and eat food that nourishes me and not obsess over numbers and measurements. So um, I didn't want to just throw all that in the trash for what's supposed to be a day about unconditional love. You know, I had a dress made that fits my body because there, there's this idea that we're all thin people <laughs> trapped <laughs> in various fat suits, I guess. And if you're not ashamed of your body, then why try to change it for your wedding? I don't know. I love my wedding photos. I think I look beautiful. I had an amazing year and I had an amazing wedding and it was really fun. And um, I don't know. I, I mean, I wouldn't have done anything differently. I would agree on the photos. They were amazing. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about them because they were part and parcel with a column that you wrote right afterwards. You know, I'm, you, your husband, he's, you know, he's a tall, slimmer guy experiencing the wedding, but also putting the photos out there for everyone to see. And, you know, in, in, in saying, I'm going to write about this and I'm going to share this experience in the media. What, what went into that thinking? You know, I just, 
I knew that my photos were going to be rad because I knew that my dress ruled and my photographer was amazing. And I, I just, I never had anyone, I don't remember any role models like that growing up. I don't remember seeing anyone who looked like me having a wedding like that and, and just being happy. I don't know. I, <laughs> there just were very, very few positive, fat female role models when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I just... And, and that caused me a lot of emotional strife. Like, I remember most of my life, um, even now, I mean, probably more than half my life, I was under the impression that I was going to always be alone. Because mm-hmm. that's what you're taught. It's like you're, you're taught if you're fat, you're broken, it's impossible for anyone to want you. And so I just really wanted to make as big a public statement as I could that this is just simply not true. And... You know, I don't want to tell people like, yeah, just stop hating your body and then <laughs> every like <laughs> magical great things will happen to you because I, you know, magic's not real. But it was a really at least for me, very direct line where I so- sort of started to dabble in body positivity and and considering that I might not be an abomination and then um <laughs> and then <laughs> like as soon as I got to that finish line where I was like, "Oh, okay." and I started to feel okay for the first time. Um, it was literally like the same week that I started dating my now husband where, yeah, I mean, it was, it felt like a switch flipped and all of a sudden when you don't hate yourself anymore, you allow other people to love you in a different way. Right. But, but that self-love is, doesn't necessarily insulate you from how people judge, of course. And and what I want to ask you also about is, other responses to you sharing those photos, to sharing the, the sentiment that you couldn't wait to be a fat bride, all these things that you you know you you put out in the world via Twitter or via uh, the Guardian column. How do people react, either positively or negatively? I would say that I, I think it definitely reaches more people in a positive way. It's just that the negative people are very loud, <laughs> and so I you know I get a lot of support, but I also get constant harassment and trolling. People dug up pictures of my husband's ex-wife who was thin and conventionally attractive and there's like endless message boards comparing our pictures and talking about how he downgraded and how he's gay and what that, you know, he's mentally ill. (laughs) Also, no one spends more time obsessing over my body than those people. Like, hey, maybe if you think I'm so gross, don't spend all your time blogging about my butt. (laughs) You know, obviously everyone's got an opinion about body image and it's hard to know sometimes what's healthy and what's not and what's acceptance and what's just buying into a particular stereotype. How do you, how did you figure out what your ideal shape was? And is that still evolving? You know, my body changes when I'm stressed out. I gain weight when I'm sad. I lose weight. I mean, when my dad died, I lost a ton of weight. You know, it's just, it's not like my body doesn't change. It's more just the idea that I don't have to constantly be punishing myself. Mm-hmm. You know, fat people are expected to constantly apologize especially if you want to be happy in public. You have to also say, you know, I I know I'm sorry I'm taking up space. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I'm not what I'm supposed to be. Um, And so for me, it was really the realization that I could pursue health and happiness independent of body size. So I think it was was just getting my head out of the idea that, that there's some sort of dividing line on the scale where these people are supposed to be striving all the time and apologizing and trying to lose weight, and these people on this side of the line are fine and can eat whatever they want. Like, no, health is not an imperative. People can do whatever they want with their bodies. 
unhealthy people deserve humanity and dignity and respect just as, as healthy people do. Health is not always in people's control. And even if it is, I, again, you're allowed to do whatever you want with your body. There's no moral imperative to be healthy if that's not something that's one of your priorities. I mean, you live in Seattle. Yes. The geography of of this is interesting to me because I feel like there's a certain pressures, obviously, living in New York. You see Los Angeles, same same problem. You know, it's not like you don't have people who are out of shape. Hello, I'm here. But you also have people who, you know, I think a little bit more worried about how they look or, or, or at least more conscious about their body image publicly. In Seattle, what's is that attitude different or do you feel like it's pretty much the same everywhere? It's definitely worse in L.A. and New York because there's like models everywhere. <laughs> like I went to college in L.A. and I just felt like a tree stump the entire time. But Seattle has a different culture, which is that everyone here is constantly like rock climbing. <laughs> like, there's this sort of like outdoorsy health culture in Seattle. I mean, and that can be as judgmental as the entertainment industry in a way, I think. You know, there's Seattle's very into like clean living and, you know, I don't know, biking down a mountain or whatever. So, you know, there's, there's definitely um, a sort of uh, a health culture in Seattle that is, that can be a little bit alienating, but also, I mean, also most people are great, you know, most people are nice and I have lovely friends in LA. I have lovely friends in the entertainment industry um, and lovely friends who, who climb stuff. Right. <laughs> um, just because, and you know, they understand that I don't want to climb stuff, not only because I think I would fail, but also because uh, it, that sounds terrifying. I don't want to, I don't want to climb a sheer rock face and I kind of don't understand why anyone does. Neither but do I. I. <laughs> <laughs> I want to stay on, I I want to stay on a horizontal that. place. Um, no, but you know, there's there's definitely pressures everywhere because these things are built into our into our culture. But I, I really think that most people are cool. <laughs> <laughs> Lindy, thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you so much. Andrea Winslow is on the other side of this body image spectrum. She's arguably the most fit person I know. She's a certified fitness professional and the creator of the Fit Cycle a YouTube series of everyday urban workouts that you have to check out. She's also a golf pro. Now, being black is a key part of Andy's fitness story. I'll let her tell you. I think we should step back and talk about the beauty of brown people. By all means. <laughs> we do that on this show from time to time. <laughs> the beauty of Carry on. folks who are resourceful, folks who celebrate culture, music, art, as a way of expression, a way, as a way of survival. Uh, I lived in East Harlem. That place is alive. But I saw that just as in Arizona, in this population I live near, the high rates of diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, stroke. And I'm wondering why is that? Why are we not celebrating self-care the way we celebrate music and food and culture? Um, So we decided to celebrate those things and present to people in the community ways that they can exercise self-love and self-care in a way that wasn't a white paper. Like, you know, 72% of the... We wanted to give to people what they were giving to us. We wanted to share the love of culture and music in a way that would help talk about issues that are mundane or uh, sterile. You know, so let's talk about exercising on the way to work instead of saying, you know, you need to have 20 minutes of exercise or vigorous activity throughout the week. Right. Let's talk about it like pow, bang, bang, like oh, action, movement, vigorous action, creation of spaces, you know, deconstruction of spaces, running, jumping, color, pow, and and by doing that, people will get people's attention. And we did. People are like, what are you doing? You crazy woman. 
Loca, what are you doing? Well, you know, I'm moving. And you can too. And actually, you're worth it. You're worthy. You deserve it. You should. Your kids should. And set an example. And so that's how we kind of got into the fit cycle. And that's why New York celebrated because it represents New York. It represents activity and uh, livelihood and self-care and beauty and all these things that people are trying to reclaim in conversations about race and body politics and image and all those things. So the video that I love the most was the video of you going to the laundromat. And uh, it, when you talk about like just like, doing squats with the laundry on your way there, uh, doing push-ups, you know, in between the washers. I mean, what response have you gotten from people who say maybe, you know, this is this is my life. This represents my life. This looks like my life. But maybe you don't look like me, you know, uh, enough. You know, I can't do what you do. Right. What, what what kind of response maybe have you gotten to videos from people who are saying that? That's a good question. I think a lot of what we do and have done in the videos is stunt-based work, work just to get people's attention. You know, back in the day, folks would say, keep my name out your mouth. Yeah. Now it's like, keep my name in your mouth. Ooh. Let's talk about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> keep keep it in the mouth. Let's talk about let's talk about this conversation because if you're paying attention, that's the that's the point. If you're questioning the fact that this is move is too advanced or it's not relevant to you, then at least you're listening. We're talking about uh, self care and physical activity and heart disease uh, rates being the highest for women. The number one killer of women is heart disease. And in communities of color, we die more than violence, more than gun violence, more than diabetes, more than cancer. We die more from heart disease and related issues than any other thing. And that's preventable and oftentimes reversible, but no one's talking about that. And why is that? Is that because we're so set on our traditions, traditions involving food, traditions involving the the amount of work that we have to do in order to usually put food on our tables. I would not say, obviously not every black person has to do the amount of work that a lot of folks are doing, but overall that's part of what African-American life is in this country is that an impediment for people to say, like, you know, I just don't have the time to exercise. I don't. Have, I have kids. I have a job or jobs. I have school at night or school. They're all during the day. I do not have the time. This is not a. This can't be a priority for right. me. Well, the grind is real. I mean, we've always been caretakers of everyone else's affairs from the very beginning of our position in this country. We don't have time, but we're also the most resourceful. <laughs> The folks who don't have are the ones who make. We are creators of things and reclaimers of things. I know it's difficult. I see my parents, they struggled and grandparents and people fought and did this and that. But if you don't have weights, use your books if you're in class. You know, get up from the table and, uh, you know, do some squats or take your phone call and pace or take the stairs. You've heard a lot of these things and they sound trite, but it's true. You just have to make the time because you make the time for everything else. You make the time to make that's what we do. We create. We're creators of things, of spaces. We're reclaimers. So we need to reclaim what it needs to be to be healthy, take a loved one to the doctor day. These are things that are going to help us survive the struggle that is very real and is becoming increasingly more real. You know, we glorify everything else. Let's glorify ourselves, you know. Indeed. Just take me a little bit down sort of your history of, with fitness. I mean, how it became a priority in your life, you know, what kind of maybe body type that you've always kind of been dealing with. And now, like, you know, getting to the point where you are, where you're actually helping other people who are trying to change themselves and and do better. Sure. I think the story first begins with a geography lesson. (laughs) (laughs) I live in Brooklyn now, but I'm from Seattle, Washington. And if you've ever been to Seattle, you know it's a very beautiful place. It's majestic in nature. And so I grew up hiking and biking and swimming and kayaking and jumping off of things into other things. And so I was very active. My parents really helped me 
uh, grow a love for the outdoors and activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I chose golf because I think it changed every day, and I loved the fact that I could never master it. Um, mm. So I began in golf, played golf at a high level, was uh, top ranked in the world. I was recruited by you know fifty colleges and universities. Chose Yale University, went to Yale, uh, played professional golf post Yale. And when I lived in Arizona as a pro, as a new pro, I found that I lived close to, uh, they call it a community now, but it was an Indian reservation called Gila Bend. And um, the people there had the highest rate of type 2 diabetes in the entire world. And the kids just seemed like they just didn't have much of anything in terms of physical activity, challenge, physical challenge. There's no water on the land. Um, The kids didn't even play golf at the golf course that they owned as a people. And that upset me. And I would film these little interstitial moments uh, in my backyard in Arizona of how to work out with non-traditional equipment in non-traditional spaces and without time. Because I f- thought, hey, I can show these kids on the res that they don't need much to be active. Mm. You know, here's how we can combat that, even though you may not have capital or resource or access to get to the gym. Here's how you can do it. Uh, Mashable picked those uh, videos up and some of them went viral. And then from there, when I moved to New York City, I made them a more formal a more formal effort with my best friend Monique Walton, and we created movies. You know, being unapologetically black in a super white space. I mean, <laughs> I'm used to my context at Penn when I was in college just as a student, but you you did that as an athlete. Mm. How did that differ maybe from your experience as a student at Yale, being in, in the white spaces that you were in as a golfer? I was raised in Seattle, Washington, which is pretty white. Uh, I played golf, which is pretty white. I went to prep school, which is pretty white. I went to Yale, which is pretty white. Very white. Played golf at Yale, which is all white. (laughs) (laughs) And it was not. You showed up. And it was not all right. Let's just put it that way. It wasn't. I wasn't on the football team, nor was I on the basketball team. So I was uh, the first and only. Uh, At first, there were others thereafter, which is great. Um, But. My existence on that campus in that role was questioned by the very coach that was supposed to be supporting my efforts, and the athletic department did not support me. The coach that recruited me was not the coach that was there when I was there, so she moved Uh on to play full-time on the LPGA Tour. And the coach that was there had some issues that were not addressed as they should have been by an administration that's supposed to support students. So that informed a lot of my experience at Yale as a student athlete. But I don't think it was just golf. I think it's just the institution. And you can see what's happening now on these campuses across the country. You've got Missouri. You've got Yale. You've got Harvard. You've got uh, University of Chicago. I mean, everywhere. Um, People are saying they've had enough. And they're they're able to mobilize because of social media. Andy, I really appreciate you joining me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I've seen Isaac Fitzgerald in his underwear, as have a lot of people. Now, he's not an exhibitionist or anything. In August, he participated in a post on BuzzFeed that showed male staffers recreating Calvin Klein men's underwear ads and confronting their fears and body issues. It's brave. I know why I would have opted out. Isaac is BuzzFeed's books editor. Our conversation started naturally with the underwear ads. All right, so first thing, let me start off with why I chose Justin Bieber, which was they sent out a bunch of photos for us to choose from, all these different Calvin Klein model shoots, and immediately I noticed that Justin Bieber was kind of covering his belly a little bit with his arm, and like that was what I was like, oh, okay, I can do this maybe by hiding a little bit, and also he had tattoos, so I went for that. You want to cover your belly. Why Why do you want to cover well, your so belly? The, I mean, this is this interesting thing, right? This is you've, you've got these different men with all these different body shapes in the same room, doing a post, knowing that it's going to go online where anyone can find it. 
But in and like even then, you could tell as we sized each other up and we were critiquing each other and like th- really thinking that everybody else had it better. Like, oh man, I wish I was tall like that guy. Or oh, look at that dude. That dude has abs. And like, I don't have, you know, and they're thinking like, oh, I'm so skinny. Or like, I wish I had those broad shoulders. And so I, when I, when I got up there in front of the photographer, um, like I really did. I tried to bend my body as way as much as possible. And we were lucky that we had a very patient and good photographer who's just like held up the photo and was like, no, you need to like show us a little more and come back this way. So body issues are a topic that is near and dear to your heart. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Why is that? Because it's something I've struggled with my entire life. I was a pretty chubby kid, but then in like around age 16, 17, I actually lost a ton of weight. And I became what, what I would now consider incredibly skinny. But back then, even then, it didn't matter. In my head, I, it's funny to me to look back at old photographs. And I think, like, I want to tell myself to walk around naked. Like, look at how good you look. And it's funny because at the time, right, you, you're so down on yourself. I look back at these photographs of myself, and I was like, good Lord, man. Like, play basketball with your shirt off every day. Same here, man. Right. But, like, back then, I still had, like, this pent-up thing. And so that's – it's been kind of this ongoing journey for me. I mean, this is something that I've dealt with, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, growing up pretty much being a chubby kid and getting what you well, – I certainly would call thinner in high school, more fit – but it's not something I really ever talked about, especially with other men. I mean, we we don't hear about body image from men all that often. Why do you think that is? I think we're taught that confidence is key. I think, right, that fake it till you make it. Be the man. Like, present yourself in the, in the best light possible. And again, I want to say, like, women also experience this. This is, this is one of those things, like... On the BuzzFeed articles, everyone was always like, yes, it's so great to hear men talk about this. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, it happens to them more than women. I'm like, ooh. Tap- Slow down. <laughs> yeah, tap the brakes. Um, but it is – I do think it is this this topic that men have a difficult time talking about. One, we have a hard time doing what you and I are doing. Like even right now, I'm looking you in the eyes and talking about this pretty difficult subject, and it's hard. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, we are taught that the way that we present – has to be confident. And that is something that I just like dove headlong into. Like, don't like, even that I carried these feelings, even if I look at myself in the mirror and be completely unhappy with what I saw, I needed, if only, if anything, maybe even overcompensate and like really act like everything was chill and I looked great and felt great about myself because that I was taught was how you became happy, which of course is lying to yourself is never going to make you happy. But that's what I was taught. Well, one of the big reasons, one of the big pathways for men becoming happy, we're taught, is through our relationships with women. And Absolutely. what I want to talk to you about was, you know, do you ever talk about your, you know, your weight or weight issues with women, with your girlfriend, or maybe, you know, women you've dated in the past? It, it, is that something easier to do when you're talking to them as opposed to talking to other guys? That's a really good question. I can say right now, I am with somebody that I've been with for a long time. And I feel very comfortable uh, talking to her about it, which has been really wonderful for me. It has been a relief. Um, Before that, I really think I would avoid it. I really think I avoid it. Again, in longer-term relationships, it would probably get to the point where I could be like, ah, actually, this is how. But, like, usually it was something I would bring up and laugh about. I I still have this thing. I have this, like, I'd be like, oh, I'm an FFK. 
and they'd be like, "What's an FFK?" I'm like, "A former fat kid," and like you know, like it, and it became this joke. Like so, I would right. still be talking about it, but it was in this very funny and also like, "Oh, that's in the past way," and especially with girls that like I wasn't with for a longer period of time that. Uh, that that probably would be the only way I would talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I know I was motivated partially, you know, to join the wrestling team in eighth grade because I wanted to build up. I wanted to yeah. get muscle, and you guess why? Why do I get muscle? Well, not necessarily just to get strong and to live a healthier life, but hey, you know, a girl might notice if my <laughs> if my upper body is tight. You know what I mean? Yeah, when you're in eighth grade, you're not really worried about like, oh, I got to keep my body fit so that I live long. Like eighth grade, you are like, I wonder if Melissa notices me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think now more than ever. I mean, we're seeing more. You see, I just saw the other day the um, the poster for the new Tarzan movie that's coming out. And you got <laughs> Alexander Skarsgård, and he's standing there in his loincloth, and he's got the eight-pack abs. And it's like, yeah, you know, just did this, you know, just swinging around the jungle. You know, that's how you, that's all you got to do to look like that. I mean, that's just <laughs> go live in the jungle. Exactly, exactly. You know, that's a great workout plan. I, I guarantee you that's going to be someone's workout plan after that movie comes out. But, I mean, the, those kind of images, I think, are more plentiful mm-hmm. of men, you know, who, who are just these utterly sculpted guys. I mean, you used to only see them in underwear ads, but mm-hmm. now you're seeing them everywhere. It's funny because this has always been true of women. Right. And you mm-hmm. always you used to have like the Fred Flintstone or the uh, the family guy, you know, the the fetch. I, I just named Homer two cartoons, I have three cartoons. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they're real life televisions, too. But right. The schlubby, chubby, somewhat dumb guy who has always like the pretty skinny wife. But again, that's not what we latch on to. You can ignore those because you're always looking towards perfection. And then you see, you know, Thor. Uh, take a yeah. shot. You're Captain America, and you're like, son of a bitch. Why do I, you know, forgetting the fact that he had a secret serum and that Thor's a literal god alien. Uh, you know, you're like, why don't I look like that? And that can that can be the tough thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, how does body image, uh, you know, how is that integrated within your identity? How your your self conception, how you present yourself? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you know, white guy in New York. How much is your body image part of how you present yourself? I mean, it's everything. Which, again, getting back to the fact that, like, your body, it's, it's, it's the sentence you can't walk away from. It's the thing you can't put down. Uh, in one of those pieces I also mentioned very shortly, but I, don't, I didn't really talk about, I've worn cowboy boots since I was a junior in high school. I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> All right? I wasn't exactly, like, growing up on the ranch. And it was because I was short. It was because a kid from Texas showed me cowboy boots one time, and I was like, oh, shit, that's how guys get away with wearing heels. And so I just put them on because I wanted to be a little bit taller. And I did that for over 10 years. What made you stop? To be totally – it's very interesting. I moved to New York. It might have been coming back and realizing that snow and ice exist. I was in San Francisco for eight Uh years. So I think – and but I did. I wore them on the East Coast – Fell on my ass all the time in the winter. I think I came back at the age of like 32, like slipped the first time. And I was like, I'm a grown ass man. It's, it is, I cannot do this anymore. Um, and then, and who knows? It might also be how you become a little more comfortable yourself. Again, just a little. But as you grow older, a little more mature, uh, as you find love in, in a deep, and I, again, I'm very lucky to be in a deep and caring relationship, you can maybe become a little more okay with yourself. So now I wear flat vans. I don't fall on my ass. I'm okay that, like, in most pictures, I'm shorter than everybody in it. And it's, it's about a little, little victories of self-acceptance. I appreciate you joining me, brother. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Erica Nicole Kendall is a fellow Cleveland-area native. And you know how much I like talking to Clevelanders. 
She's a personal trainer and the founder and writer of the popular blog, The Black Girl's Guide to Weight Loss. And she writes from experience. Erica lost a tremendous amount of weight. I wanted to talk to her not just about her journey, but self-image at any size. My mother is the reason why I got started because, you know, she did that motherly nagging thing, right? We are in the car and we are rolling and a gym opens up around the corner. And she's like, you know, this gym opened up, you know, you should go. I said, okay, fine, I'll go. So, you know, we pull into the gym and I go in and I'm just like, I just want a membership. And the guy was just, you know, he, he did that sales thing that mm. gym owners do. And it's just kind of like they want to goad you as much as they can into signing that contract and so I just kind of let him because I kind of needed it in the moment um how heavy were you at the time if you might ask I was about 330 some odd pounds at that point and you know I let him and you know a little while into it I started crying just because I was like this is the stuff that I need to hear so I decided to join the gym and this was all well and good except you know it Six months later, I had only lost 30 pounds, which the average person would be like, that's great. But somebody that's that size working out seven days a week the way that I was going at it, 600, 700 calories in a session um, should have lost more. Ha ha. The issue was I would leave the gym. Uh oh. And my post-workout meal was I would go to Taco Bell. And I would order my nachos and I wouldn't get the, you know, I would get the chicken and I would get, you know, the extra sour cream because I earned it. Right. And I did this virtually every night. And then I decided to change the way that I eat. And then weight kind of just started flying off. And I was like, oh, maybe if I add the working out to this, then maybe it'll make a difference. And it did. And it stuck. And I found ways to work out that I enjoyed, but were also cheap. And every day, 45 minutes, it would be me and my daughter, and we would go for a walk around our apartment complex. And um, I remember, like, the kids in the neighborhood would get so used to seeing us that they would start following us. I don't, uh. I like my kid. I don't like everybody's kid, right? You feel well, me? Yeah, so, I you. Yeah. so I started running because you can't keep up with me now. So if I put my daughter on my back and I take off running, these kids can't keep up with me. And that was what encouraged me to start running. Wow. You know, it's one thing to share your journey, but it's another thing, of course, to start a blog like you have and start helping, uh, yeah. you know, people get on their own journeys. Why did you start the blog and why did you decide to focus on black women in particular? I started the blog because I'm, you know, my background is in in research and in music history. And being that I my daughter was so young at the time, I missed reading, I missed researching and I missed writing. So my idea was that, you know, I was I was also a freelance web developer at the time. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna build this website, I'm gonna like play with it. And, you know, then I'll just like, I'll also use this as a space to um, keep notes of the things that I've learned. And I accidentally picked up an audience you know I would I was talking about like I was on Twitter and I was talking about I just kind of created this little thing for myself and then it just picked up and it spread like wildfire and before I knew it it, there was so much support um, predominantly from black women because our experiences with our bodies to our bodies and with the way that the world interacts with our bodies are similar. They're not the same, but they're similar. Mm -hmm. And I think we all feel a similar kind of stress and pressure. And I have to, I do have to say that 
a third of the sites I would say a third of the site's visitors are global and and not just, you know, the continent of Africa. You know, I'm talking like there's a there's a surprisingly large French population. Uh. Um, and I get an email. I get at least four to five emails a week from uh, from a woman that start off with, well, I'm not black, but. Uh, so, you so, know, I, I mean, like that's actually it leads me into the next question, because, I mean, you've written about this idea that. Eating healthy is a white girl thing. Yeah. And I know for a lot of white women, at least my producer tells me, the idea of watching your figure is bred into them from such a young age. Yeah. And that that can lead to some pretty unhealthy habits such yeah. as anorexia, low self-confidence, mm-hmm. bulimia. How do you find a balance between identifying as a black woman, which comes with its own beauty standards, and eating healthy and dieting? So – I'm going to come around to the answer to your question. Okay. So one of the very early on things that I did was I decided to learn how to cook. So when you look at, and you know, because broke, I would go to bookstores and I would read the books in the bookstore. I would read the cookbooks and I would take like a little notebook and I would write down recipes because broke. And I would go to, and this was at this time I lived in Miami and I would go to the grocery store. I'd take my daughter and her shoulder, go to the grocery store. I would only buy the things that I could carry, which limited my ability to buy junk food and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, And I would buy a week's worth of groceries, kind of load them up on the stroller, bring them home. And I would cook these recipes and I found myself cooking a lot of Latin recipes, a lot of um, Mediterranean recipes, a lot of recipes from France, and I would cook a lot of Chinese. So, you know, my understanding of what healthy food is actually came from an understanding that non-processed food, by and large, is going to be healthy food. So coming around that um, understanding of healthy eating being a white girl thing, I accepted that when you look at different cultures and not just white cultures, but, you know, Asian cultures, Latin, Latin cultures, right. you know, black cultures, because I was the, say. listen, listen, you know, looking at our old cookbooks, you know, I have a White House cookbook from like 1870s. I couldn't even tell you. And, right. you know, these recipes are not heavy in, you know, heavy in the the. They're they're high in fiber. They are high in protein. And there might be bread, but so what? You know, this bread is made from, this is bread that's made, like, by, I mean, probably a slave, but, you know, (laughs) I mean, but this is bread that's made by him. But at least it's healthier. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, let's keep it 100. But, you know, when we talk about... Um, when we talk about healthy food, we don't give enough credit to the fact that the recipes that we were cooking prior to the advent of processed food and food adulteration, this was healthy food. And I actually talk about this on the blog because it's like, okay, well, how did we come to the understanding that healthy eating is a quote unquote white girl thing? Everybody's understanding of healthy eating is about somebody else. And then they have a gross misunderstanding of what else is happening on the other side of that grass. Right. Like the grass is not green over there. We're all struggling. You're doing this interview with a baby on your lap. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> this is a first on Intersection, i got to tell you. And I just want to, you know, there's going to be a lot of people making New Year's Eve resolutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of them are going to be pregnant women mm-hmm. who have just given birth mm-hmm. and are looking to get back to their actual body, what they mm-hmm. feel like is their actual body. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give you know, to people in general, but especially to pregnant black women out here who are feeling like 
you know, this is it. I actually have this conversation with myself a lot because I feel I'm still getting accustomed to the the reality that it's not just my life as it was prior to getting pregnant plus a baby. Like everything has changed. Right. You know, when I go back to my yoga practice, I'm heavier now. So it's a little bit more rough on my knees. Running is not going to feel the same as it did before. I can no longer do, you know, an 830 mile. I can't do that. I have to be much more gentle because I've got joints that I have to be mindful of. And also I'm pushing a jogging stroller now. You know, um, I've, I would say be gentle to yourself and be realistic about where you are. You are not you prior to 10 months ago you know this is not this you're not the same person it's not the same body this is a body that has just birthed a child you know this is a miraculous incredible thing and we don't allow ourselves to give ourselves credit for that indeed indeed good to see you homie Oh my gosh, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Indeed. Us, apparently. Yes. Because you put me on blast. Yes, us. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> He's sleeping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, I also asked my other guests to give some advice to those whose New Year's resolutions involve their body image. Here's Lindy, Andia, and Isaac. The first thing I would say is in this age of data, use it to your advantage. Data collection, data recording, and data analysis. Whether that be using your smart device or getting a little notebook, a track workout tracker. You've got to see what you haven't done and what you're committed to doing, and then you've got to track it. Um, then I would say surround yourself with a support group or support system, whether that be an online community of fitness folks or your neighbor or your daughter or your mom. And then um, the third thing I would say is Realize that it's not going to happen quickly and it's it's a journey, right? So don't go don't go too hard or too fast. Ease on down the road. <laughs> I think one, find somebody you can talk to about it. Uh, I feel very lucky that I have like again my girlfriend, but also my friend Saeed Jones. I have somebody that I feel comfortable talking about these issues with who is another man. And I think that's important and they should definitely do that. Um two, definitely do it. Like if you have something you want to work on, work on it. But at the same time, three, understand that it's not going to happen fast. It may not happen at all. And that it's got to be more about how you feel about in how you feel in your own body and growing comfortable with that. Um, and I think that's like the New Year's resolution. If you have a physical resolution, you should also try to make a mental resolution. I, I would just tell people just, just to remember that you're, especially women, you're more than just a body. People, are, people tell you all the time that you're just a body and that's not true. Don't reduce yourself to to just one thing. And also, um, the idea, really the most important idea for me has been to divorce the idea of health from what a body looks like. I don't know. I mean, what's the point of building self-hatred into your New Year's resolution? Like, resolve to, to do something positive, not take something away from yourself. Does that make sense? That makes all the sense in the world to me. Awesome. <laughs> That's a wrap on this week's episode. After such a personal show, we'd love to hear from you, our listeners. How do you feel about beauty, health, and your body? Let us know by emailing us at podcast at newrepublic.com. Find Intersection on Facebook at facebook.com slash intersectiontnr and at intersectiontnr on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter at Jamil Smith. Intersection is produced by Michaela LaFrac. 
We record at Argo Studios in New York, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our music is by Julian Villard. We'll be back with you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.